Well, if you were with us on uh, Wednesday in our prayer meeting on Zoom, uh, we were looking at Colossians chapter 1. I mentioned that we were going to continue today. It it wasn't planned this way, but I want to direct our thoughts to Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to read from verse 15 down to verse 23. And then we'll just spend a few moments... uh, just thinking about what Paul says about Jesus here. So Colossians chapter 1 and verse 15. Paul writes, and he, he's writing about Jesus here. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is a gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Well, we're just going to spend a few moments just uh, having a lot of think about those verses. Um, Let me introduce um, some thoughts with with this idea. Um, Sometimes in discussions between, let's say, a Christian and an atheist, you might sometimes hear the phrase, the God of the gaps. No one really seems to know who first coined this phrase or where it first uh, originated But I think this phrase is sometimes used by atheists in discussions to express the idea that really people only believe in God because there are things that they don't understand. There are gaps in their knowledge. And the idea is, I suppose, that as our knowledge of science increases, as our philosophical understanding increases, these gaps in our knowledge will shrink and decrease And eventually there'll be no reason left for anyone at all to believe in God. The only reason people believe in God 
is because he's the God of the gaps. You understand that idea? The assumption is that the human race will ultimately grow out of its need for God. Now, I don't don't think that that kind of thinking has been true uh, always, and I'm not sure that uh, everyone approaches life and thinking about God in quite that way. And we've just read here from Paul's letter to the Colossians, and I'm struck by the idea that in the first century, thinkers in the first century did precisely the opposite of what our modern philosophers uh, in, in, in the way we've just been describing do. Let me explain. On the one hand, people knew in the first century, like we know now, that when we, when we look around the world, we, we see that it's, it's messed up. There's much beauty in the world, but there's much brokenness as well. Life can be hard. People die. Wars happen. Uh, tragic things occur. There's pain and sadness. Relationships break down. The world that we live in appears to be very broken. But the way that people in the first century would approach that question would be to elevate God to be so distant and so high and so removed from that that he had nothing to do with the mass. If this physical world is bad and God is good, there must be a great gap between the two. So instead of putting God in the gap of the things we don't know, first century thinkers would take God out of that gap and remove him far away. They couldn't conceive of a good God who would get his hands dirty. And so what did they put in the gap? One of the things that Paul's addressing in this letter is that what people put in the gap between a distant, lofty, high, faraway God and a broken world was a hodgepodge and a fusion of all kinds of things. A mixture of paganism. There were ideas about Judaism in there. Even Christianity got put into that bag and shaken up. The idea was that this high and distant God must have delegated the creation of this world even to lesser beings who made a hatch of it. And part of our task in life is to somehow climb through that religious fog to find our way to the mysterious God who is transcendent and above I'm trying to portray attention there. How do we reconcile a transcendent God with a broken world? How do we reconcile a supreme creator and finite creatures? How do we reconcile moral perfection and human selfishness? How do we reconcile goodness and brokenness? How do you bridge that gap? What do you put in there to reconcile those extremes? Well, on this Good Friday of all days in the year, I think there's only one answer to that question. I only have one point, really. And it's this, Paul's central idea in this letter, and certainly in this passage, 
that we read together is that the stunning and sufficient answer to this very question is not a theory or an idea or a mismatch hodgepodge of superstition. The answer to this very idea is a person. Jesus Christ in himself is the resolution of the tension at the heart of the universe. He's the unique person who bridges these extremes that we've been describing that would otherwise be irreconcilable. Jesus is both the transcendent God and the broken Saviour. So let's just trace some of Paul's logic here just for a few moments. I've got one point, but I've got some subheadings. So, first of all, just look with me at this passage you read, verse 15. First of all, Paul describes Jesus as the perfect revelation of God. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Um, Recently, I had to show my passport to someone for ID. And on the passport is my image. That's how they knew it was me. The image, Paul here, when he uses the word image, he is saying that the God who is invisible and high overall is made visible in the person of Jesus. What Paul is dealing with here is the kind of spirituality that is vague and aspirational as if in our human wisdom we can climb up to God somehow and find him but this word here in revelation is a word that speaks of revelation this is a word that speaks of God coming down to us and revealing himself to us in the person of Christ he is the image of the invisible God if we want to know what God's like We don't need to guess. We need to go and look at Jesus. This is a word that speaks of revelation. Later on in this letter, Paul says to this church in Colossae, see to it that no one takes you captive. In other words, see to it that no one picks you up and runs off with you. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human traditions, according to the elemental spirits of this world and not according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of the deity dwells bodily and you've been filled in him. Paul is saying to them, stop being superstitious. Stop putting superstitious spirituality in the gap. Jesus Christ is all that you need. Secondly, very quickly, Paul here speaks of Jesus as the glue that holds the whole universe together. 
Just walk with me through these verses. Uh, the second part of verse 15, Paul describes Jesus as the firstborn over all creation. Now, that, that doesn't mean that Jesus was the first created being. This is not about chronology. This is about status. In ancient times, the idea of a firstborn son was that that firstborn was superior to their other siblings. It's, this is about preeminence. The firstborn was the head, the boss, the most important one. This isn't a statement of chronology. It's a statement of preeminence. Jesus is the head over all creation. And Jesus can't be a created being anyway, according to Paul, because in verse 16, he makes it very clear that it's through Jesus that all other things have been created. Jesus created every other power and authority. All other beings that exist, therefore derive their status from him. Whatever powers there are in this world, or even in the invisible spiritual world, they are all entirely subordinate to Christ. There is no power of good or of evil that exists that has any power over him. Nothing phases him. There's no power that can back him into a corner. There's no power that will ever dethrone him. He isn't afraid of anyone. He isn't distant or absent. The hands of Jesus are not tired. There's nothing or no one anywhere in all creation who is not under his authority. There's no one that he's answerable to. Jesus made all things and he has all things in his pocket. Paul then goes on in verse 17 to say something very astonishing. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. This is a big idea in the ancient world. Maybe it's a big idea in Star Wars as well. Um, that there's some kind of force... <laughs> that is like the coherent glue that bonds the universe together. May the force be with you, as we hear in Star Wars, don't we? It was believed that there was a life principle somehow, a cohesive force that pervaded all things and bonded things together. Paul is saying that Jesus is that glue. It isn't Mother Nature. It isn't an impersonal force. Jesus is the living glue. In him, all things hold together. Think about this. I, don't, I mean, this, this, this is not like um, a scientific analogy, but imagine if the universe was a body. Christ would be the soul or the spirit that animates it. In, in other words, the universe would be like a corpse if it wasn't for the animating, creative glue that is Jesus. All reality would fall apart and disintegrate if it were not for him. 
He is not the God of the gaps and getting smaller and smaller and smaller as science increases or our knowledge of science increases. He is the one behind and before all things. Science itself depends on him. What a vision of Paul of, of Jesus that Paul paints here. And of course, this is where we have a problem, isn't it? This is where Paul's first century readers would have a problem. The first century, in its wisdom, would have a problem with this. This whole poetic tribute to Jesus has to face up to the fact that the world we experience is broken. If Christ is supreme, why is there disharmony and dysfunctionality? But Paul doesn't just anticipate this, it's actually what he's building up to. So thirdly, Paul here describes Christ as the recreator, the great reconciler. What becomes clearer here is that this great gulf, this great gap, the tension at the heart of things that we're talking about is actually a dislocation, it's a rupture. Evil has arisen in God's good creation. And like a sort of centrifugal force, that makes things spin and out of control and break up. But there's a massive surprise here. In verse 18, uh, Paul here says, And he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. Why mention the church at this point? Does that not feel like Paul's coming back down to earth with a bump? He's been talking about the cosmos and then he says, and the same Jesus is the head of the church. What Paul is saying is that in the same way that Jesus is the hand that animates the glove of creation, he is also the life-giving creative agency that makes the church alive. That's why Paul goes on to say here that he is the firstborn from among the dead. Jesus isn't just the head of all creation. He's the head of a new creation. This supreme, sovereign king has been broken and smashed through the brokenness and conquered it. Isn't it striking that Paul says here, he's the beginning and the firstborn from, from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Surely Christ is already supreme on the basis that he made everything. But no, Paul says that Christ is if it were possible, even more supreme than he already is supreme because of his resurrection. Paul is showing us that the creator entered his creation and having been broken by it himself, he powerfully rose again, shattering death and showing forever that brokenness is not the final word. 
So Jesus is not just the supreme creator, he's the supreme recreator who puts back together and unites what is broken. And please don't miss the divine happiness here. Um, Verse 19, for God was pleased. (laughs) Don't, Don't skip over that. For God was pleased. What kind of thing makes God happy? What on earth would you give to an infinite God to make him thrilled? This truth makes God swell with pleasure and delight. God was pleased for all of his fullness to live in Christ. There's a smile here. This kind of language about dwelling, it has echoes of the Old Testament, doesn't it? God comes temporarily and lives in a temple to be near his people. But all of that was a shadow. It was a foretaste. It was pointing forward to the day when all of the fullness and the glory of God would dwell, not in a temple temporarily, but would take up permanent residence in a person, Jesus. And he's the one who Paul says is responsible for putting things back together. Why did God's glory dwell in Jesus? Verse 20. So that through him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Do you see how Paul gets to the heart of things? This great king comes to die he has united his divine nature with our human nature ultimate glory has been forever wedded to sheer brokenness in the person of Jesus let me close with three quick observations first of all this supremacy of Christ means And hear this, it means that he himself is totally sufficient. That's the burden that Paul has here. Paul does not present Christ as one among many. He is the unique one who bridges the great gulf between the invisible God and his vandalized creation. There's therefore no need for any other knowledge or wisdom or person to mediate that gap between God and us. You and I don't need Jesus plus something else. If he is the great ruler who holds the cosmos together from its beginning to its end, is he not able to keep and sustain even the weakest believer? And in particular, Jesus is sufficient as a saviour. When you and I are united to this Jesus by faith, all of his glory becomes ours. And all of our failure is swallowed up 
by him forever. Jesus is treated as if he was the one who committed our sins. That's why he was broken. So that God can treat us as if we lived the perfect life that he lived. That's why we have hope. Secondly, the brokenness of Jesus means that he is profoundly sympathetic. Hear this too. The innocent one suffered. He bears our sin to bring us forgiveness, but he also knows the full depth of our human anguish. Jesus is not aloof or cold or distant, but he shares in in our human experience. There is a king who knows. He knows what we've done and he knows what other people have done to us. There is one who measures our tears and forgives our sins. You, you may or may not know, but there's a, there's, there's a lot of talk in our culture about abusive leadership at this moment. Abuse is terrible in all its forms. But who wouldn't run to a king like this? Who wouldn't turn to a king like Jesus? Isn't he the leader that we all long for in our hearts? One who is strong and kind. One who is mighty and compassionate. So finally, I want us to see today on Good Friday... That it, it's the oneness of Jesus that makes him so utterly attractive. And what I mean by this, when we talk about this great gulf and this gap, and that Jesus is the one who bridges it, there's only one Jesus. There isn't two of him. There's not a powerful one and a broken one. He is one. Christ in himself. And it's the blend, isn't it? In him that makes him so utterly attractive, beautiful, praiseworthy. He is strong without being exploitative or bullying. He's kind without being weak or lame. He is truth and love and clarity and compassion and power and grace. We, we know, don't we, that beauty somehow is about richness. I was thinking about this. I'm not a musician. I can play the piano with one finger, and it sounds nice. But when you hear someone play the piano who knows how to play several notes at the same time, I think they're called chords, aren't they? And the blend, how rich it sounds when you hear a chord compared to me on my one finger. There's something about beauty that is rich. It's not one-dimensional. It's not 2D. It's not black and white. It's colourful. And this is Jesus. If Jesus was a tune, he would be the most indescribable harmony, wouldn't he? Jai touched on this on Sunday. 
In chapter 4 of the book of Revelation, we get an amazing vision of the throne room of the universe with the sovereign Lord sitting on his throne, receiving the worship and adoration of his creatures. And then in chapter 5, we notice that he has a scroll in his hand with writing on both sides. It's all sealed up. I I think this is meant to represent history. And all of the days that God has ordained are written there on that scroll. And a mighty angel steps forward and asks a question in a loud voice that thunders into every nook and cranny of the universe. Who is worthy to break the seal and open the scroll? Who can do it? This is a question of capability and competence. Who is able to hold human history in their hands? Who can unlock it? Who can oversee it? Who can hold it all together? And in heaven, there's complete silence. And John falls to the ground in tears. Surely there's someone, if there's no one who can do this, we're all lost. And as he weeps, one of the elders touches him on the shoulder and says, stop crying. Look, there is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He has triumphed. And as John looks through his tears for this great roaring lion, what does he see? He sees a lamb looking as if it has just been killed. You couldn't draw it. It's hard to even imagine it. How can you be a roaring lion and a bleeding lamb at the same time. The cosmic Christ became the crucified saviour. And the point of John's vision in Revelation is that in an ultimate sense, despite our pain and our sins, this broken world is somehow in safe hands. Nail scarred hands. We have the greatest good news that this world has ever heard, don't we? Dear ones, this beautiful Christ is the one who indwells you, the one who loves you and has saved you. Sovereign Lord, sympathetic Saviour. He is enough.